Isaiah 41, 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proof, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample upon rulers as mortar as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say, he is right? There is none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisoners, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kadir inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time, I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our God. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is blind is my dedicated one or blind is the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake 
to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are of all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Amen. One of the most popular types of TV shows over the years has proved to be the courtroom drama. We love the idea of putting all the pieces of the story together to figure out who to believe, to figure out what's true. We love the challenge, the surprise, the aha moment where it all comes together in a twist we didn't expect. In this section of the book, God is making himself known to his people through various visions he's given to the prophet Isaiah. There's a lot of metaphor and simile here. And the picture at the end of chapter 41 is one of a courtroom. And for once, we aren't necessarily the ones on trial. In fact, in this courtroom, we're playing the part of the judge. God is the one who's speaking. It's a mix between a cross-examination and a closing statement. But it's the idolaters who are on trial, those who cling to their idols. And for them, spoiler, it doesn't end well. 42.17, they are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. The trial of false belief begins by putting their false gods on the stand. This is verses 21 to 24. God is appealing to logic and reason. He's giving the idols the opportunity to prove that they're really gods. If they can do the things that he does, then they have a point. They, too, are gods. Now, before you smile, confident that you know how all this is going to turn out, Let me ask you something. If you really understand and believe that these idols are not God, that only God is God, if that's so easy for you to accept, why is idolatry so tempting to us? If we really believe and accept that, why do we turn to these idols again and again? The Genevan pastor John Calvin was right when he said that our hearts are idol factories. That's why the New Testament spends so much time telling us to flee from idolatry. Anything we substitute for God in pursuit of security and satisfaction is an idol. And it's a mistake to think that idols aren't real. They're very real. They're just not God. Here, as one author puts it, God is appealing to our rationality. Contrary to what the world thinks, blind faith is not what God's looking for. 
God isn't afraid of clear thinking. In this passage, he's trying to provoke clear thinking. Let's set the evidence out and have a discussion about it. Christianity doesn't wither under the scrutiny of reason. It's idolatry that flourishes in the fog of our confusion. In Isaiah's vision of a courtroom, God picks a fight with all the idols. They claim to be gods. They claim to be able to do all he can do, to offer us all he offers. So he puts them to the test. Yahweh has said with certainty what will happen in the future. He knows it because he decrees it. He gives the example here of Cyrus, that one from the north who will come to conquer most of the known world. Through Cyrus' decree, Jerusalem would be restored from exile. And long before it ever happens, God said it would happen. Every word that he utters about Cyrus in the book of Isaiah comes to pass in the centuries and decades to come. Many of the pagan religions in the ancient Near East claimed that their gods could predict the future as well. Fortune tellers and diviners and prophets of these false religions always said they could figure out what was coming. But they couldn't. Maybe they'd get lucky from time to time, but they were wrong far more than they were right. Verse 26, there was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. God's given them the opportunity. Bring forward any evidence that will support the claim that these idols are gods. Crickets. They simply had nothing to offer. When you compare Yahweh's track record to the idols, there's just no comparison. In the past, God had led his people out of Egypt, parting the Red Sea. In the future, God will leave them out of Babylon under Cyrus. The idols of the nations have saved no one. Just like the idols that attract us, they make grand claims. They may be very real, but they are not God. Judge for yourself, God is saying. They can't create a people, but I made Israel, who were not a people, into my own. They can't predict the future. But I ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Of course, the biggest contrast starts in verse 29. Of the idolaters, God says, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing, and their metal images are empty wind. And then look at the very next verse, chapter 42. I wish there was not a chapter break here. The very next verse. Behold, my servant. Behold, they are all a delusion. Behold, my servant. What we find in chapter 42 is the first of Isaiah's servant songs. And it's very important that it doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes in direct contrast to the idols who are all a delusion. They can say nothing. They can predict nothing. They can control nothing. And they can save nothing. The servant of God, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Justice is the central theme of this first song. It's in verses 1, 3, and 4. 
And even though we're in a courtroom, so to speak, it's not being used in its legal sense. A closer match for how justice is used here is the way that word is used of the tabernacle in Exodus 26. It's something that is designed perfectly, and the design is carried out according to the blueprint, something that is exactly as it ought to be. It's that sense of justice. One teacher put it this way, the plan for the tabernacle God revealed from heaven. In a similar way, God has a plan, a blueprint for human existence. He knows how human beings and human society can be at their best. He knows how to make us happy and fulfilled. And through his servant Jesus, he's bringing his plan down from heaven to reorder human civilization in a beautiful way. It's idolatry that corrupts and perverts human existence. Idolatry moves us away from God's design, makes us less like we ought to be, and life less like it ought to be. It's why we can never ultimately be happy and fulfilled in lives of our own making. But the servant, God says he will bring forth justice to the nations. This is not like the trivial pursuit of Systemic justice by which we idolaters end up doing more harm than good. This is God making all things new and and right and, and just. God making things according to the blueprint of his design. Under his care, under the work of the servant, things will be as they ought to be. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The servant's way of working will be unlike our own. We get one example of that in verse 3's metaphors of a bruised reed and a smoldering wick. As the world tries to make things how it thinks they ought to be, what does an idolatrous world do with the weak and the broken? It crushes them. It needs to be rid of them quickly. They're a waste of resources and time and energy. What does the world do with a smoldering wick? It snuffs it out. A candle producing smoke but not heat or light is merely a frustrating annoyance. What does God's servant do with the bruised reed? He strengthens it by his own strength. He supports it and lifts it up. The smoldering wick, he trims, cutting away that which is useless to make it productive again. God sees things as they ought to be by the design of his own blueprint. And he condescends to lift us up. The false gods we turn to, our aspirations for them are delusions. But God's servant will faithfully bring forth Justice, he'll make of us and our world what it ought to be. In verses 5 through 9, God speaks to his servant in our presence. And what we hear should change our lives. He will give Christ, he says, as a covenant for the people, as a light for the nations. By Christ, God will open the eyes that are blind and bring out prisoners 
from the dungeon. And because no idol can accomplish this, God will not share his glory with any of them. God will be glorified when Cyrus does what was ordained for him to do. And so even more, God will be glorified in the work of the servant. God will most and always be glorified in the keeping of his promises. As an observer in the courtroom, hearing the case presented before you, called to listen to the facts set forth, how would you respond to what God has said? Can you argue with any of his facts? Here, long before Cyrus is known to anyone in the world, God is telling the people the exact part he will play in history. And isn't scripture filled with example after example of God declaring the future before it occurs? Here, long before the incarnation of Christ, God is telling his people the part he will play in their story. Isn't scripture filled with example after example of his promise keeping? And so you, sitting in the judge's seat, what additional proof must God offer to make his case? How do you respond? Do you respond as one who thinks all of this could be true? Nod in agreement, but hedge your bets in the day-to-day? Or have you really heard and believed the case that God makes for himself? Because if you have, the response is clear. Life-consuming worship. The courtroom language continues here as worship is expressed first through Witness, the idea of being a witness called to the stand. The idolaters could only call their idols to the stand, mute, deaf, and impotent. But God calls his redeemed people to be his witnesses. Sing to the Lord a new song, verse 10. His praise from the ends of the earth. Verse 12, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastline. Worship is our opportunity to witness to the world the truth about God. Kids, do you know why believing adults take worship so seriously? Why we think this matters so much? It's not because we think it's an act of of law-keeping and of righteousness where we prove to God that we're on his side. We take worship seriously because it comes out of us as the natural response to seeing our own sinful condition, seeing how far we miss the mark. How far our hearts are from what God has designed. And then hearing his promise to free us from our chains. To give us new life in him. And to make us and our world what it ought to be in the world that is to come. 
We worship because we can't imagine doing anything else. We must witness to the truth about God. And the Bible says worship happens publicly and privately, but those terms are probably not what you think. The term public worship isn't just about it being in front of other people. Plenty of private worship is in front of other people. Public worship is worship that is connected to the church. It's what we do together here on Sundays. Private worship doesn't necessarily mean alone. Sometimes it is. But private worship is all the ways you worship God in your life apart from the church. And the point of the language here is that worship is to happen in all settings, publicly and privately, so that our witness to the world in all times and places is the goodness and the mercy of God. Three times Isaiah uses the word behold, and this is what it means to be beholden to someone, not in a bad way, but out of a sense of, of duty, to owe a duty because of what's been done to us. And our duty before the Lord is to witness to what he's done. If you go through life thinking that your duty before the Lord is obedience, you'll never get it right. The pursuit of obedience will never make you a worshiper. Your response to the Lord needs to be worship. The pursuit of worship will make you an obedient follower of God. Not perfectly, but sanctified and becoming more and more like Christ as you pursue him in your life because you've seen him in worship. Three times I say it said, behold. He's trying to ask us, to whom are we beholden? Who are we living for? In much of life, we seem to be living for idols. We're living as though we're beholden to these idols. Yet, what have they ever done for us? God called us to himself, saved us, made us free. We should live as though we're beholden to him. Because everyone is a worshiper, by the way. There are no non-worshippers. Everyone is a worshiper. The question is, what are they worshiping? And closely related, what is the result of that worship? One teacher wrote, idols divide. That's why the world is a place of anger and hostility, because as we worship our idols, we will inevitably be divided. The true worship of God unites people. It brings us together as it brings us to Christ. The prophet calls the whole world to join him in worshiping God. He wants everyone to be freed, to be released into true worship. That's why Christian worship is public and not just private. 
In our public worship, we witness to and welcome the whole world into this. And we're not the ones making the invitation, incidentally. God is. There's a well-known story. Some say it's apocryphal. I, I don't know. It seems realistic to me. About the atheist king of Prussia, Frederick the Great. And the story goes that he asked the philosopher of the day, Jean-Baptiste de Boyer, if he could give one single irrefutable proof of God. And to this, the Marquis supposedly replied, yes, your majesty, the Jews. You see, he was saying that the way the faithful Jews lived could not be explained apart from the reality of God. Some of you know people whose names you could use in that testimony. What what happened to them, the change in them, how they live cannot be explained except for the truth of God. Some of you know that you are that person. The person that others around you agree simply could not be what you are apart from the power of God. And though some especially feel that way deeply, the reality is that's all of us. It's all of us. That's why we all should be embodied testimonies to the reality of God. We all should be zealous Worshippers here in public worship and in our daily lives as well, because our lives should be testimonies to the reality of God. The passage ends with a warning for those committed to their idolatry. The case God has made for himself is ignored at great peril. And yet many do ignore it. As though blind, they shut their eyes to the light of the world. As though deaf, they close their ears to the good news when it is preached. And Isaiah says this was happening in his day in Israel, even among the people of God. Those with the mark of the covenant circumcised into God's covenant people were closing their eyes and their ears to the good news of God. It's common in the church still today. Many church attenders, many children who grow up in the church, they do this. They close their eyes and their ears to what God is saying us in worship, treating the faith as an exercise in blind faith. And so responding without any faith at all. Isaiah calls us to see to hear the case that God is making, to put him to the test, not to set logic and reason and our questions aside, to bring them, to ask them, to put him to the test and see if his promises ever fail. And yes, as if anticipating our objection in verse 15, he reminds us his work in our lives is disruptive. Mountains being leveled, valleys being raised up. The work of God in our lives is not something that we will understand or always be pleased with. 
We should not be surprised when we don't understand what God is doing. But he is God. He's proven it beyond all doubt. While our idols sit in helpless silence. So the Bible doesn't just tell us to flee from idolatry. It tells us also to run to Christ who is our life. It's the first commandment we heard in our confession this morning. It's to have no other gods before him. It's first because if we will keep that commandment, the whole path of life opens up before us, making the others an equal delight. Idols try to complicate everything. They try to overwhelm us and use the confusion of life as a discouraging distraction. But God's offer to us is quite simple. Behold, my servant. When we stray from that, when we trust not God's for our security and satisfaction, we wind up inevitably disappointed. That what you're doing. Put yourself in the witness stand. What are you really trusting for security and satisfaction? I tell you, I've said it before, your calendar and your credit card statements will give you the answer. What do you really think will save you? Abstract faith for the life to come? Or daily walking with Christ in his life now. Your approach to worship will tell you, public and private. What are you really trusting for security and satisfaction? Believers, put away your idols. Behold, they are all a delusion. Instead, behold... And be beholden to the servant of God. He is our life. Amen.